All right. Well, uh, as you can see this morning, we're actually going to begin a new section in the book of Revelation. That starts with Revelation chapter 4. Uh, before we look at this new chapter and going into the next as well, we need to remember that it wasn't just the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3 that were addressed to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, it is actually the book of Revelation as a whole that is addressed to the seven churches of Asia. And we can see this a couple places already in chapter 1. So keep your finger here in chapter 4, go back with me to chapter 1. And just a reminder of what uh, the Lord says to John and what, the, what John says to the churches. Again, Revelation 1 verse 4, John explicitly states, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And the reason why he addresses it that way is because of verse 11, uh, where the Lord himself says, What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And then, of course, we have the itemization of those churches and those cities, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Uh, so again, the entire book of Revelation is addressed to these seven churches in Asia, not just the letters, the individual letters of chapters 2 and 3. And so what we find here, starting in chapter 4, has a particular relevance to the seven churches to whom it was first written. And I think it would be helpful for us to consider that as we move forward. There is a special relevance of all of Revelation to those churches that are first addressed. Now, as we move forward in this book, we will find for the second time, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the second time John tells us that he was in the Spirit, that he was in the Spirit. Uh, the first time was also back in chapter 1, so we're going to be doing a little bit of back and forth this morning. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 10, he said the same thing. Uh, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And of course, that is when John received this glorious vision of Christ and was then given those seven messages from Christ to the churches. So that's the first time, and, and really we're going to find that phrase four times in Revelation. Uh, that is one way that you can divide the book, actually, is when he says, I was in the Spirit. Uh, so the first time is back in chapter 1, verse 10, and now we come to the second time, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, if you head there again. He says, I was in the Spirit. He's taken up, once again, in a spiritual way unto heaven itself in order to reveal to him some of its glory as well as to the churches who were in need of that vision of God's glory. So what God shows John in this chapter, and really even the rest of this book, again, is especially meant to help the churches with whatever challenge that they were facing. And if you remember, we spent some significant amount of time looking at the challenges that each of these seven churches was facing. Uh, there were some churches who were struggling with persecution, uh, really two in particular, and that was the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. They were struggling with persecution, and as they come to chapter 4, as they hear what John sees in heaven itself, they will be encouraged by what he sees and what goes on in the rest of the book. Because, again, the end of the story is that the Lord Jesus is going to fulfill his promise and return and make all that is wrong right in this world and to the churches. So to the churches who are struggling with persecution, they will be encouraged. But the vast majority of these churches 
were actually facing and struggling with their purity. Uh, of course, there was idolatry that was rampant. There was even immorality that was rampant in these churches. And they too will be exhorted by what they see in these chapters, and especially what takes place here in chapter 4. And so this is uh, really the connection point between the letters to those churches and this throne room vision by the Lord to John in chapters 4 and 5 and on is to assist the churches with what they were struggling through. So what is it that John sees? Uh, well, this is what John sees. We're just going to read through chapter 4. Of course, it continues on in chapter 5. It actually continues on through chapter 9 <laughs> uh, because so much of what John sees and hears is from this particular vision in heaven. So picking up there in verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, John writes, after this, uh, so after uh, receiving those messages directed to those seven churches in Asia, after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately, John says, I was in the spirit, there's that second time, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, or four and twenty thrones. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings, and thunderings, and voices, or other sounds. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts, or four living ones, full of eyes, before and behind. And the first living one, beast, was like a lion, and the second living one, like a calf. And the third living one had a face as a man, and the fourth living one was like a flying eagle. And the four living ones had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those living ones give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure. They are and were created. This is what John sees in this chapter and going on into the next. And really, this entire chapter deals with the throne of God in heaven. The throne of God in heaven. We can divide it up into two ways. Uh, the first section of this chapter, is which we'll look at this morning, is the wonder of the throne. And that's the title there in your message guide. The wonder of the throne. And then the second part deals with the worship at the throne. So, the wonder of the throne is what leads to the worship at the throne. And so this morning, we're just going to consider the wonder of the throne that we find in verses 1 through the first part of verse 6. 
And I think the best way forward in this chapter, and really in a lot of the chapters to come, is just to look at it verse by verse. And I think as we go through verse by verse, questions might come as we look at it. <clears throat> I'll try to share some of the things that I've gleaned from these verses. Uh, but of course, if there's some things that um, you wonder about these verses, uh, I can perhaps share what, uh, what I've learned or what others have contributed as well. So let's first look at verse 1. Uh, we already read this, but again, uh, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a, vo uh, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things, show thee things which must be hereafter. Now one of the things that we notice in this verse is that the vision of chapter 4 and 5 and ongoing through chapter 9 is closely connected to the vision of chapter 1. So after John received the seven messages, so he's writing them down as the Lord says them to him and gives them to him. And, and of course, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 22, he's writing down specifically what Jesus says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then he looks, he looks up. He, he lifts his eyes up from the page that he was writing. And all of a sudden, he sees, Behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, throughout this chapter, you're going to see that word behold. And actually, a lot of times in the book of Revelation, you're going to see that word behold. Because God is using something to get the attention of John, which he then uses to get our attention as well. And so the first thing that he beholds and wants us to behold is this door that is opened in heaven. Now, we're not sure what this door might have looked like, but it's an open door. So it's kind of a, a window into heaven, if you will. Um, now, later on in the book of Revelation, you're going to read about the heavens being rolled back like a scroll, and, and heaven itself is, has direct access. But here we just have a, a small access panel into heaven itself. And not just the, the, the heaven of the sky, but into the third heaven, the heaven of paradise, the heaven where God himself dwells in all of his glory. He goes on, And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So again, this vision is closely connected to the vision of chapter 1, because he not only sees this door, but in the second phrase there of verse 1, at the same time, he hears speaking to him the first voice. That is, the first voice that he heard referring back to chapter 1, that was like the sound of a trumpet. So whose voice is this? Whose voice is this? It's none other than the voice of Jesus from chapter 1, verse 10. In fact, again, go back with me to chapter 1, verse 10, because this is the initial installment of these visions. And again, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And so we'll come back here to verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, this is the voice I heard, the voice as of a trumpet, the first voice that I heard. So the voice that I heard in the first vision is the same voice that I hear now saying, come up hither. So Jesus continues to speak to John with a voice that was loud and clear. Um, you know, we often think of the sound of a trumpet um, maybe being blasted or blared while he's speaking, but John doesn't say that. He says it was as a trumpet. So there's a lot of similes, there's a lot of likes and a lot of ases. So he's trying to describe something to us 
so that we can kind of get a picture of it in our minds. Uh, even though it wasn't a trumpet, it sounded like a trumpet, it was as a trumpet, it was loud and clear just to get his and our attention to what will happen next. And so what does Jesus, that first voice that he heard all the way back in chapter 1, say to John? Again, come up hither. So the Lord wants John, and this is actually in the imperative form, it's a command, he wants John, commands John, to come up to that door that is open in heaven. Now, we already know that Jesus is the one who holds some keys in his hands, right? He is also the one who is in control of some doors that we've already seen. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, talks about how he is holding the keys of hell and death, or Hades and death. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 7, uh, to the church in Philadelphia, he tells them that he is holding the key of David, so that what he opens, no man can shut, and what he shuts, no man can open. And then in verse 8, he says, I have set thee an open door. So this one who is in control of keys and in control of doors says to John, you see that door in heaven? Come thither. I want you to come up here. I want you to see what is beyond. So Jesus opens to John a door to heaven and tells him to come up as if John is able to do so. Uh, now, obviously, as a human being, he is unable to do so. But this shows us, I think, that Jesus' word is enough to enable John to obey and to come up and to enter into that door to see what's beyond. This shows the power of Jesus' word. And that is a theme that we find all throughout the book of Revelation, the power of Jesus' word. It's a theme that we find all throughout the Bible and have experienced in our own life, the power of Jesus' word. There's enough power in Jesus' word to command John to come up, to enable him to come up, and see what lies beyond the door. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of John coming up into heaven through this door? Well, it is to show John things which must be hereafter, it says there in verse 1, to show John. So Jesus wants to show John some amazing things that are going to take place, as well as things that are taking place in heaven itself. Now, we need to remember that what John sees and is shown is in a vision. Uh, it is kind of like a, a waking dream. It's a, a vision, a visionary experience. Uh, more than likely, he was not physically transported into heaven itself. Uh, again, he was in the spirit being taken into heaven, this throne room heaven. So he is seeing things in a vision. And probably the best way to describe what he sees are scenes are scenes. He sees a lot of different things, but not all of those things deal with events. Now, there are a lot of things that he sees that do deal with events that take place in heaven and on earth, but a lot of the things are very symbolic and show to him something more about heaven, more about God, more about man, more about this world. And so probably as we go forward in the book of Revelation, the best way to describe what he is shown by Jesus are scenes. But Jesus is going to show him what can be translated here in this verse, what things are necessary or must happen after these things. Uh, so he actually uses the, the, the word for these things twice. So what things are necessary to happen after these things, Jesus is about to show to John. It seems to refer to the things 
that were taking place within the churches that he just addressed. Now, we know there was a lot of things happening to those churches that he just addressed. And so Jesus is about to reveal what must happen, what will happen after the churches deal with the issues referred to by Jesus in his letters to them. So there are some who will consider this to be um, a revelation of things, of just things that will happen after the entire church age, for example. Uh, they would look at all the seven letters that we've just looked at in chapters 2 and 3, and instead of just looking at that, at those churches in those times, they would say, well, that applies to you know, all of the churches of all time, which in many cases it does. And so what we're finding here in chapter 4, verse 1, is something that is even beyond our time. And yet, we could actually move it further back, and I'll show you this as we go uh, further in, in, in the book of Revelation, where the things that he is showing after these things could actually describe what was taking place in those churches at that time that John was writing to them. And so we, uh, we are not necessarily looking just at the future here in chapter 4, verse 1. We can actually be talking about things that happened even in our past, which was still in the future for John as he writes this. So uh, we're not quite yet into the future. Uh, there are some who would describe this as when John is taken up into the throne room of heaven as the, a, a symbol or a picture or a representation of the rapture of the church. Um, and of course, I, I think that um, that is kind of reading a lot into these verses, though that has been an opinion on these verses for a long time. Um, I don't think that's what John is describing. That's not what Jesus is doing in these verses. He simply wants to show him what is going to happen after the period of the churches that he addressed just recently in chapters 2 and 3. Now, that period will last into our lifetimes and beyond our lifetimes, even into the, the kingdom of, of Jesus on earth, but it begins after he addresses these churches. But these things, he says, must happen. That is, they will happen, and ultimately it's because of God's sovereign control over everything. So what happens? What happens after Jesus calls John into this door or through this door? Verse 2, and immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit. Again, there's that second time we see that phrase. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So again, John says, I was in the Spirit. Now, uh, just like we considered back in chapter 1, verse 10, I think that he is most likely referring to not his Spirit primarily, but the Holy Spirit of God, because it refers to the same kind of experience that Ezekiel had all the way back in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there, but we looked at this when we considered chapter 1, verse 10. But in Ezekiel 37, verse 1, Ezekiel testifies how the hand of the Lord was, Lord was on him and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. And of course, we have the valley of dry bones. So a similar experience is, is taking place here to John. Uh, he is being taken and carried by the spirit of the Lord to see things that he normally would not be able to see. Uh, in some kind of visionary trance. So once again, in some way that we can't fully understand or fully describe, the spirit of John is taken captive by the spirit of God so that he might experience spiritual realities apart from his physical and bodily senses. And that too is something that we need to consider as we go through the book of Revelation, realizing that these are visions 
is that God shows him what he wants him to see. There are other realities in heaven. There are other realities about God that are true, that we find all throughout Scripture, that John isn't necessarily shown. He doesn't give us all the details about heaven, all the details about God, all the details um, that, that we would think that God would want to show him. But God is selective. Jesus is selective to show him what he needs to see, and there's a purpose and a plan for this vision that, he is give, that, that John is given. Now, when he says again the second time, I was in the Spirit, does this mean that this was a second separate vision? Uh, there are some who believe that, the, that John actually had four experiences through the, gospel, or through the book of Revelation, and that you know, maybe after each visionary experience, he wrote down what he saw and then compiled it into the book of Revelation. That's possible. Uh, there might have been a little bit more time between these visions. Um, I don't think so. Uh, just because of that, <clears throat> that close connection that we saw there in verse 1, where he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. So we see again that connection between the first vision and the second vision. So it's almost like these visions are, are deepened. Uh, maybe it's a, more of a further involvement in the vision. So he was taken in the Spirit in one sense to be able to see the glorious Christ who gave him these messages in chapter 2 and 3. And now he is taken into a deeper trance, a deeper visionary experience into the throne room of heaven itself. Um, so we see this connection, again, between Jesus' call and the Spirit's conveyance of John, so that immediately John is up and through the door into heaven itself, and, and we don't hear about that door ever again. Uh, we're not even told you know, that he went through the door, it's just immediately he's there, <laughs> So obviously that door was there for a purpose, and it was to get him into heaven, and now the door is out of sight, just like a lot of things in our dreams. <laughs> you know, there are things that make no sense. There are things that might be, have some relevance in our dreams, but a lot of times they're just, they're past, and that was the same thing here. So what is it that John sees? What's the primary thrust of this chapter? What's the primary central thing that he sees there in verse 2? A throne. A throne. This is the central feature, which all throughout the book of Revelation symbolizes authority and even royalty. Thrones symbolize royalty and authority. Now, we've already seen in the, God, or in the book of Revelation this throne referred to. Uh, in fact, if you go back to chapter 1 again, Revelation chapter 1, and you look at verse 4, Again, John addresses this book to the seven churches which are in Asia, and he offers this prayer for God's grace and peace to be to them. He says, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before what? His throne. So this is the heavenly throne. This is the throne that John now sees. If you jump down to or jump over to chapter 3, verse 21, uh, this throne is also mentioned when Jesus is telling to the Christians in the church of Laodicea, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in what? In his throne. So this is the throne that he sees there in verse 2. The throne of Almighty God. The throne of God the Father. 
Now, from this point until chapter 4, verse 6, the first part of verse 6, John describes what he sees. John describes what Jesus shows him starting from the inside out. So he, he focuses on the throne. Obviously, that is the most stunning part of this entire revelation. That's the most impressive thing for him to see. And he is given a glimpse of spiritual heavenly realities in a visible way so that he can express them to us. Now, one of the amazing things about not just what we find in chapter 4 and 5, but also all throughout Revelation, is John describes things that he sees in biblical language. In biblical language. He was so steeped in Scripture that in order for him to translate what he saw in that vision onto the page so that you and I could understand it, he uses the terminology of Scripture. He gives us so much Bible language. In fact, we're not going to turn to these passages, but I would encourage you uh, sometime this week to read through Revelation chapter 4 in its entirety, maybe even chapter 5, and then read Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, and Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> and look at all the similarities between those passages and what those prophets saw, what Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel saw, and what John is seeing. And there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity. So it's not exactly the same thing in many cases, but he is using biblical terminology, biblical language, for us to be able to grasp just a little bit of what he has seen. He is so overwhelmed by this vision. In fact, one particular writer said, when we come to this chapter, we need, just need to let our imaginations go. Because nothing that we can imagine is going to capture even the, a, a, a glimpse of the glory that John saw there in the throne room of heaven. It is brighter than we would even think. It is more beautiful than we would even think. It is more spectacular than we would ever imagine. And John is there in a vision to see all of these things, and then tries to express it in a way that we can understand, especially those who know the Scriptures. And what is it that John sees on this throne? He sees one sitting on the throne. In other words, this throne is not empty. It's not just an empty chair. It's not just an empty seat. Now, as we move on, we're going to see that this throne is not just a chair. <laughs> it's not just a seat. In, in fact, it's a, a central point on which so much leans to and focuses on. Uh, in fact, if you um, learn anything about the even the throne that Solomon had built for him as he was king over Israel, uh, the throne was not just dealing with the actual seat upon which he sat. It was the steps that were leading up to it. It was probably the uh, the... the um, the stones that were around it. It was the, the animals, the lions that were leading the way to it. And so this throne, this heavenly throne, is also a big throne. But to the very central focus of this throne, there is someone sitting there. Now, he doesn't say who this one is, because we already know who that is. But he doesn't describe who he sees. He actually describes what he sees, because it itself describes for us the living God. Now, for someone to sit on a throne is also a symbolic uh, way of putting things. To sit on a throne means that he belongs there. That is, he belongs there for the purpose of ruling and reigning. 
And obviously that describes the God of heaven and the God of earth. But when we come to verse 3, he describes what he sees. So he that sat or he that was sitting there was to look upon, and here's again that, that word like. So this is just gives us a glimpse of what he saw. He's not saying it was exactly like this, but it was something like this. It was like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So the one that John sees sitting on the throne is full of light and full of color. And he describes him by using the colors of translucent stones. Now, um, from the biblical standpoint, jasper is a precious stone of various colors. Um, now, when we think of jasper, we think of a, a rather dense stone, uh, and it could be any number of colors. Um, but the jasper stone probably that's being described here was more translucent. Uh, some even say it might have been fairly clear, but would have a purple or a bluish tint to it, or a purple or bluish hue to it. And so this is what John sees emanating from this throne and emanating from the one who is sitting on the throne. He doesn't see a form. He doesn't see an image. He doesn't see a person. He just sees the glory of light and the color that is being refracted from it. And so he sees this purplish blue. Uh, the sardine stone, which again is another connection to the church in Sardis. Uh, because the church in Sardis, if you remember, was named after the stones that were very prevalent in that region, the sardine stone. Uh, it was another precious stone that was reddish brown in color or orange in color. Uh, again, it also would have been translucent, and if you shined a light through it, it would almost look like a flame of fire. Um, so again, we have this, this purple and this blue and this red emanating from the one who is sitting on the throne. Um, now, of course, we know from various scriptures uh, from John 4.24, that God is a spirit, right? God is a spirit who dwells, according to 1 Timothy 6.16, in a light which no man can approach unto, unto whom no man hath seen nor can see. So when we're speaking of God the Father, he is a spiritual being that cannot be seen with your eyes. He cannot be seen with your physical eyes. And, and even though... John here does not see God, the Father, in any form, any physical way, any physical form. God did allow him to see some of the light of his glory. And, of course, that is something that we see also taking place in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses, Moses was uh, asking God, show me your glory. And, and God himself said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live, he says. He says, but I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you as I pass by, and you will see my hinder parts, and you will see my glory. And so this is a common theme that we see both in Old Testament and in New Testament. God the Father is a, is a spirit who cannot be seen apart from just the light of his glory and the brightness of his glory. And here the brightness and the light of his glory is refracted and reflected in these colors of blue and purple and orange and red. But then, in addition to this, emanating from round about the throne was, he goes on, a rainbow. The word translated rainbow is the Greek word iris. And so if you're familiar with the iris of your eye, that is the part of your eye that is colored, uh, whether it's brown or blue or green or hazel, and, and, it's, and it's surrounding your eye. Uh, that's the picture here. 
Um, it's not like a, a rainbow that we would see in the sky, uh, which is usually just but a half arc, but rather a halo almost that is surrounding the throne and is emanating this green along with the blue and along with the reds and along with the oranges and all of these colors. So here we have a green hue, an emerald hue added to the mix. Um, so encircling the throne is this iris of green like the rays that surround the sun. What a glorious picture. What an amazing thing that Jesus showed John in order to show us so that we might be able to see and experience the glory of God in this way one more time. You see, these churches, especially in, in chapters 2 and 3, they might have been struggling with seeing God's glory again. You know, I mean, they were dealing with persecution. They, they were dealing with purity. And now God shows to, to John to show to these churches, to show to us, this is reality. This is reality, the darkness that you're going through, whether it's the darkness of persecution or the darkness of your own impurities. That is nothing compared to the brightness and the glory of God himself. So don't wallow and look on the darkness within, but rather look up and see the glorious light from above. So with all of these colors of glory, there might be some symbolic significance to them as well. Again, remember, when you think about a rainbow, there's more than just three colors, right? I mean, there's the Roy G. Bibb. You know, you've got all seven of those colors. And so what God is showing, what Jesus is showing John, are these specific colors perhaps to show that there's some real symbolism to what he wants him to see in Christ, to see in God. Um, the bluish purple of the jasper would have been displaying the majesty of God. When you think of purple, you think of majesty, you think of might, you think of royalty. Uh, the reddish-orange of the sardine stone that looked like fire if you held it up to the sun, if you held it up to the light, would display the purity and the holiness of God. Remember, in, in, the, in the first part of Revelation, Jesus himself had feet that were like fire, like, like bronze burned in the fire. And so he, here we have the counterpart of God the Father there in the throne. We have this amazing display of his purity and holiness. The greenish hue of the rainbow would express the life and the grace that flows from the one sitting on the throne. So what do we find here at this throne? All beauty, all glory, everything is spectacular because it reflects the glory of God himself. Now, what was shown to John here is similar, again, to what others saw at times in the Old Testament. In fact, why don't you keep your finger here and go back with me, to, all the way back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. And this is taking place as the law was given to the people of Israel. And this is a part that we kind of almost forget about, and some, something that we almost gloss over. So when they saw God, when they had the privilege of seeing God, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, what did they see? They saw, as it were, under his feet, verse 10, as a paved work of a sapphire stone. Now, obviously, sapphire is blue, but we see another hue of color coming into this scene. And, and so it's something similar. It's not exact. It's not a parallel, but it's something similar that we find here in the, in the book of Revelation. But also, as it were, they saw the body of heaven in his clearness. So they saw God, but they saw God, as it were, heaven in its clearness. So they saw a form of God, but not a body of God. Because God is a spirit, and you cannot see God in a physical form with physical eyes. So there's the spiritual clarity, the spiritual 
image that they were privileged to see, which was full of light and glory. Again, something that John uh, saw here in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you go with me now to the prophecy of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. And if someone could read for us verses 26 through 28, Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. Again, he too sees something similar, not exact, but something similar. Now, in this case, Ezekiel sees the appearance of one like the Son of Man. So in this case, he is seeing the Son of God. Uh, he is seeing Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. So he is seeing a, a physical being. But we see the same glory surrounding this one as John sees surrounding the throne in some of the, the, the same phrases, the, the color of amber, the appearance of fire there in verse 27. Um, <clears throat> verse 28, we see the appearance of brightness round about. And so all of this is just the glimpse of the glory of God given to Moses, given to Ezekiel, now given to John. So again, this shows us that there's a consistency in how you see God in the scriptures. So John sees a glimpse of the glory of God, if we head back to Revelation 4, of God the Father sitting on his throne. But then he describes further something else that encircles the throne. And that is what we come to there in verse 4. So he starts with the middle, he starts with the throne, he starts to show us the glory that is emanating from the throne, and beyond that, he says, round about the throne, verse 4, were four and twenty seats, better translated thrones, the same word, thrones. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So here in a circle, and again, you can see the, the, the iris, the, the halo, if you will, of the green and the, the reds and the blues emanating in a circle surrounding the throne. And then also surrounding the throne, John sees four, 24 other seats, other thrones. Uh, we're not told how far they are away from the throne, but there's probably enough distance uh, for something to be in between them that we'll see um, shortly. Uh, but it's well within the light from the throne. So he can see these seats. Uh, these thrones also symbolize majesty and authority, just like the throne. Uh, but their authority is more limited and certainly divided in scale than God's throne. On these 24 thrones, John has shown 24 elders. Uh, the, the word is presbuteroi, uh, which is a common word in the New Testament for the elders of the church, uh, presbuteroi. Uh, but it also simply just means someone that is older, <laughs> someone that is old, someone that, that is, is um, up there in age and experience and wisdom. Um, now, the interesting thing is that these 24 elders will play a prominent role all throughout Revelation. And so we're going to meet them again. So we're introduced to them here, uh, but we will meet them again in chapters 5, in chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 14, even all the way to chapter 19. John will even communicate with one or, or more of these elders. But the big question that uh, a lot of people have wondered is, who are these elders? And what are they doing there? And, and who do they represent? Well, there's all kinds of ideas. And so I just want to briefly kind of cover what two of those main ideas are uh, and just kind of share with you what I think. Um, there are some who think that these are men, that these 24 elders are men and actually include the 12 patriarchs. So we're the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so if you think of Jacob's sons, right, and you think of all of those 12, um, but then you'd add to those 12 the 12 apostles. 
So if you have the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church, you add them together, that makes 24 elders who represent the entire people of God through all time. So the people of God back in the Old Testament through the people of Israel and the people of the New Testament time through the, the church. Now there's a lot of good reasons for thinking that these 24 elders are indeed men sitting there before the throne room of God. Um, in fact, they're connected. You can look at the connections with the letters that we saw earlier in chapters 2 and 3. Um, so here we have these 24 elders sitting on thrones. Okay, um, And back in chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus actually promises to the church in Laodicea, whoever overcomes will be seated on thrones, just like he is seated on his father's throne. Also, these 24 elders are wearing white raiment, uh, which is something else Jesus promises to believers in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, to the overcomers in Sardis. I will clothe you in white raiment. Um, also, these 24 elders are wearing crowns of gold. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, to the church in Smyrna, the Lord promises to the persecuted church that he will give them crowns, the crown of life, to those who overcome. It doesn't talk about golden crowns, but it, the crown of life nonetheless. So there are some strong reasons for these elders to be men who represent all of God's people. In fact, if you go with me to chapter 5, uh, just a, a page over, um, we can even see this from their song to the Lamb in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. Uh, now, if you have a King James or New King James, it's going to read similar to what I'm reading because this is from the received Greek text tradition. And so these are the words of the songs of those elders. They sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy, singing to the Lamb, singing to Jesus. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tribe and people and nation, and hast made us king unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And so if you look at it that way, there's some strong evidence, some strong reason why they would be considered men that represent all of God's people of all time. Um, it may not be the patriarchs or the apostles because, uh, you know, it does say every kindred and tongue and people and nation, but they are representative. They represent God's people of all time. However, this is one of those cases where the underlying Greek text is not entirely certain. Uh, in fact, if you uh, were to read these same verses in like the ESV or the NIV or the New American Standard Bible, it uses the critical text and it actually kind of reverses it. So listen to it as I read it from the ESV and you can kind of follow along in the King James. Again, these elders sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So sadly, the song of the elders in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5 is not conclusive for us to know whether or not this is, in fact, men or something else. But that the elders are men is certainly possible. Um, but if it is the 12 apostles, as some would consider, John himself would have been one of them, and he would have been seeing him on one of those thrones. So that's just something to kind of throw out there. Um, but however, there are others that think that these 24 elders are angelic beings or angels, but rather um, some kind of higher rank 
than the other angels. And I, I kind of kind of lean toward this, this view um, because of some of the explanations that we find elsewhere in Scripture. Um, thrones are actually used for a higher rank of angels in the New Testament. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, and goes on. Um, angels are also found wearing white garments to symbolize their purity. So they also wear white garments. Uh, angels may even be referred to as elders in the Old Testament, back in Isaiah 24, verse 23, when he describes them as ancients. So these elders are classified with other heavenly beings and are, sought, are said even to offer prayers of the saints as incense to God. Um, this is kind of the understanding of elders that I favor, and, and we're going to actually kind of end there because I know we're kind of losing time here. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to this and review this a little bit. Um, whether you think it's men or angels, it, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but this is kind of one of those debates that you're going to hear about as you read through some of the literature on the book of Revelation. But one of the things that all are clear about is that these elders represent God's people in some way, which means this. They're in the throne room of heaven. In all of that glory and that splendor, we have a representative, not just in Jesus, but even in these elders who are actually singing for us, praying for us, interceding for us, what a spectacular thing. We are represented in that throne room, even as John was. All right, we're going to stop there, and we'll move on as we go forward in this book. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this, this time. Thank you that we've seen some just glimpses of the glory that we find there in heaven, the heaven, heavenly reality. And Father, I pray that you'll help us as we explore this more, that, that you'll impress upon our hearts just how powerful and how pure you really are. Because, Lord, that is the perspective that we need when we deal with persecution or purity in our own lives. Help us to have a, a vision, a fresh vision, as John did, of the heavenly realities in the throne room of heaven itself. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.